Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Tom Jones will join us to discuss space shuttle stories. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science show. Well, perhaps no other space flight is as well known as the space shuttle. But what are the stories that have gone into flying these shuttles? Joining us today to discuss this issue is Dr. Tom Jones. Dr. Jones is a distinguished graduate of the USAF Academy. He served on active duty of the Air Force officer for six years, worked towards a PhD at the University of Arizona in Tucson with research interests in remote sensing of asteroids and meteorite spectroscopy. He trained following his missions in NASA in 1990 and became an astronaut in July of 91. Had several awards for his service and has penned a new book regarding the space shuttle and it's titled Space Shuttle Stories, First-Hand Astronaut Accounts from All 135 Missions. Dr. Jones, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Glad to be with you, Charles. Thanks for inviting me. Well, a number of accounts from the astronauts who've flown these missions on the space shuttle. I'm curious what led you to compile these stories and put the book together. Well, the shuttle retired about a dozen years ago. And in that time, there have been a number of technical histories that NASA itself, engineering style authors have put out there. There's some great ones, uh, particularly the series by Dennis Jenkins about the shuttle's development and testing and operational history. But what was missing from the bookshelf of shuttle books was the human element of the space shuttle. And in fact, the whole idea of operating the space shuttle for 30 years was a people enterprise. It was a team enterprise from mission control in Houston to the launch controllers in Florida, and of course, the team members that were in space, the shuttle astronauts. Uh, There were about 355 of them who flew on the space shuttle over its 30-year career, and I wanted to capture their stories in a comprehensive way that would complement all this technical information that's already out there. Did you find that many of the astronauts were receptive to recounting their own personal experiences with their missions? I was surprised at that. Not too many people were jaded by the experience of being asked the question for the the ninth or 15th time about their shuttle missions. And I certainly felt that in my four flights, I had a lot of stories that I could still tell. What was missing from my 11 years as a shuttle astronaut was the chance to sit down and casually talk about the peak elements, the peak experiences that my shuttle colleagues had had. I knew the stories of my 20 crewmates that I flew with in space, but the guys who came before me and the guys who came after me, those were the folks that I really wanted to sit down with. So when COVID came along and I had more time to sit in front of a Zoom call, I started systematically calling up a crew member from every mission, one crew member from every flight. I couldn't do 355 interviews, but I could do 135. And it took me two and a half years, but I lined up at least one person from every one of the missions to record their interview, make it into a transcript, and then edit that down into a readable account that represents the unique story from that particular flight. 
looking at 135 missions, were there threads from the beginning to the end that you saw through line in terms of how these missions evolved, were conducted, and done? Well, I think the space shuttle really was the tool that taught us how to do everything that we do well in space today. Uh, we learned so many lessons over those 30 years from the early test flights of a new machine, a groundbreaking space plane that could be reused and returned to Earth on a runway, to the era of it becoming a science platform to pave the way for the space station science operations, and then launching scientific satellites across the solar system and looking back at our own planet. And then there was the military aspect of the space shuttle. We flew 11 Department of Defense missions that helped us in a material way win the Cold War. So the space shuttle was an incredibly versatile machine, and I wanted to capture all those elements. I think what you see as you go through the 30 years of the shuttle is its evolution from learning how to just operate the spacecraft for the first five to 10 years and do it safely and reliably to making use of all of its flexibility with the robot arm, with its uh, incredible maneuverability to fly up close to a satellite and repair it or to dock with the Mir space station and eventually to, to build the International Space Station. All of these aspects became more and more important. And soon the space shuttle became our work and science platform in space. And for about 20 years, it was what every American knew of when they thought of America's presence in space. That iconic vision of the shuttle in space was what most of us grew up with. Maybe starting at the very beginning, what about that very first shuttle that uh, went into orbital space flight, Shuttle Columbia? Shuttle Columbia was the boldest test flight in history on STS-1, Space Transportation System 1, the very first mission in April of 1981. And I was able to interview Bob Crippen, the pilot of that mission who flew, flew it with John Young. And Bob gave me some sense of the butterflies in their stomach as they prepared to take off on this first shuttle flight. It, the shuttle could not be flown without a crew on board. So it was impossible for NASA to launch an unpiloted test flight and check it out. We had to have the crew in the cockpit, flipping the switches, running the software, and hand flying the shuttle back to a landing. So the excitement was building. And Crippen said, you know, they tried once, they had a scrub because of a computer glitch, but then two days later, they were ready to go again. And he said, as the countdown moved inside of one minute, he looked over at John Young and he said, you know, I think we might do this. And then of course, Young, in preparing Crippen for his first space flight, was saying, you know, if you don't get a little bit excited when they're about to light 7 million pounds of rocket thrust under you, then you don't understand the situation. <laughs> so that kind of exhilaration from Crippen and the amazement that the machine actually got off the ground with them in it and got back safely to the Earth was something that came through in the interview. Did that level of excitement ever die out throughout the history of shuttle missions? I seemed like it was getting a little bit routine for people watching it, but was it ever that way for the astronauts? No, if you're inside the space shuttle at liftoff, it's a life-changing experience that you will never forget. Uh, the vibration levels, the noise levels in the cabin, the acceleration of the shuttle off the pad is two and a half Gs of acceleration. So you're slapped back into your seat with about almost triple your normal weight. So I weighed about 500 pounds during the ascent. And a lot of my astronaut interviewees told me about how they had heard the adjective dynamic to describe the shuttle. So these are fighter pilots, combat flyers from Vietnam who are flying the shuttle for their first time. And they said, I thought I understood what the word dynamic meant, but the space shuttle really taught me what dynamic meant with the shaking, the vibration, the acceleration, the noise, all rolled into one 
flashes of rocket fire outside the sky turning from blue to black, all of that coming in in an incredibly crammed eight and a half minutes of the ascent to orbit. That's something you'll never forget. Curious about the second mission, one where they tested the Canada arm, the iconic for a lot of the missions of the shuttle. Well, testing the Canadian robot arm got underway very early. It was the, it was an international contribution to the shuttle program, and the Canadians contributed these composite-built, very lightweight, robotically controlled arms that could grapple satellites from space. They could pick up satellites from the cargo bay and release them into orbit. And of course, it was fundamental to building the International Space Station to bring up these modules and then plug them in delicately and precisely into place. And so very early on, the shuttle crews got involved in testing it using mock payloads at first that simulated what a real satellite would be like. And then eventually, you're able to snag satellites that had broken down out of Earth orbit, bring them aboard the, the space shuttle for repair. STS-49 was the example of that where shuttle was used to put an astronaut on the end of the arm to try to grapple a broken communication satellite, Intelsat 6. And the astronaut's tool to snare the satellite was faulty, and it couldn't grab the satellite effectively. So the robot arm had to give way to three astronauts using their six hands outside on the only three-person spacewalk in history to grab the Intelsat 6. Then the robot arm could latch onto it, put it into place. They installed a rocket motor that enabled the satellite to go into its working orbit. So this combination of the robot arm with spacecraft that could be grappled and astronauts who could use their versatility standing on the arm was the unbeatable combination that enabled us to do everything from repairing the Hubble telescope to building this space station. Really was such a remarkable, had a lot of firsts, and of course, STS-7, first American woman in space, Sally Ride. Sally Ride. She broke the glass ceiling in space, obviously, and she was one of six female astronauts selected in 1978 to purposely crew the space shuttle. There were 35 new astronauts in that year and six women among them. So I believe four are still with us. We've lost Sally Rod. We've lost Judy Resnick in the, in the Challenger accident. And so I've interviewed the other four who are still with us and active. But to get Sally's voice, I went back to her media interviews that she did before STS-7, the first flight with an American female aboard. And her exhilaration and exuberance comes across. I think what struck me most about her experiences was how she said it it was becoming a member of a family on a space shuttle crew, becoming a member of a team where you felt completely integrated into getting the mission done. But the people that you were flying with were like your brothers and sisters. And she really enjoyed that aspect of, yes, she was the only woman on board and the first woman on board, but she was part of a team that blended in perfectly with getting the job done. One of the tragic histories, the Space Shuttle Challenger in 86, and that, of course, left an indelible mark on not only the, the program, but also a generation who, who watched it. Well, these two tragedies were uh, avoidable tragedies. They were caused by human error in NASA management, in, our, in the NASA's communications procedures internally about how they talked about risks and the hazards of flying the space shuttle, which were not insignificant. The shuttle had a built-in design flaws caused by the scrimped budget under which it was developed back in the 70s. And so to prevent accidents, NASA would have had to pay very careful attention to what the space shuttle was telling us each time we brought it back to Earth. And we examined it, went over it with a fine tooth comb, tested all the systems, and we were learning that there were design flaws in the shuttle's boosters. And then later on, when we lost Columbia in, in 2003, there were repeated instances of chunks of insulating foam coming off the external tank and striking the shuttle's delicate heat shield tiles. And yet 
in both the case of Challenger and Columbia, NASA didn't stop flying in order to fix the technical flaws. Instead, they kept flying, thinking that they could fix the um, design flaws and shortcomings while they kept flying and, and completing missions. And these kinds of managerial or programmatic mistakes are what we have to avoid in the future. So I think the lessons learned from my book are that we can carry these institutional failures with us in our minds as we confront the challenges of going back to the moon and going on to Mars. And then the second part of the story is, how do you tell the story of 14 astronauts who perished on a shuttle? How do you capture their voices? They can't be interviewed today. Unfortunately for me, I was able to, to look at video interviews and media interviews of the Challenger crew. When they were lost in 86, they had left some record of their thoughts behind. So I have a, a snippet of the voice of each of the seven astronauts for Challenger, including Dick Scobie, the commander, Krista McAuliffe, the school teacher who was on board. And then for the Columbia crew, uh, I could have done the same thing, but my friend Laurel Clark, who was lost on Columbia, was a colleague who helped me work on the space station program in the late 90s. And I found an email that she had sent to her family and friends back on Earth in the closing days of her Columbia mission. And it so perfectly captured the exuberance of the crew in being in space, mainly many of them for the first time, in the satisfaction that they felt that their science mission was coming together so well, the sights out the windows. She talked about the food and the, the daily routine and how hard she was working. But through it all came her sense of joy at being able to be part of this team on this science research mission aboard Columbia. And I think that just so represented the crew that I just used her email as the way to capture the spirits of the seven astronauts on the Columbia. How did you find that it affected other astronauts, the ones that came after these tragedies? What was your sense of, of the feeling about their missions and their resolve to continue? Well, it was a shock to the system. You know, when Columbia was lost in 2003, I had already left NASA, but I was watching the close of the mission on, on my TV at home. And I recognized when we lost contact with Columbia during reentry and repeated radio calls went unanswered that there was something seriously wrong. And, you know, at that point, I just had to get down and say a prayer for the safety of the crew because I knew that uh, there was something seriously wrong with the shuttle and and the chances of the crew's survival. And then I came to NASA in 1990, four years after the Challenger accident. And the echoes of that tragedy were still reverberating through the astronaut office. And so the astronauts felt that they had not been fully informed about the problems with the shuttle's booster design that led to the demise of the Challenger. And they were determined in the staff meetings that I went to during my early years they were determined to not let a safety problem like that sneak by them again. They felt that if they had spoken up more vigorously about the shuttle safety problems that were being confronted in the 80s, that they might have been able to, to save Challenger. And the astronauts weren't even really aware on launch day that there was an added risk from those boosters' performance in cold temperatures. Nevertheless, even though it wasn't their fault, they felt institutionally that they were not going to be silent while NASA skipped over or ignored safety aspects of the shuttle. So that was a renewed determination to fly as safely as possible, even though this was an experimental vehicle for its whole 30-year history. Well, as much as I'd like to go through all 135 stories here, I feel we won't have time, but I'm curious, are there ones that stick out to you as far as what they point out about the shuttle or mission in its history? Well, I will choose one of my stories. I didn't use all four of my missions as material for the book, but I did excerpt my last mission when I went to help build the space station and deliver the U.S. Science Lab Destiny. And so by that point in my career, this is my fourth mission, 
I was riding shuttle Atlantis with this big U.S. lab module, 16 tons, big as a school bus, and we were taking it to deliver and install on the space station. And I felt mentally that the shuttle by that point in my career was my ride to work. And even though I understood all of the operations of the shuttle and how to deal with emergency procedures and conditions, it really was not the shuttle that was the focus of this flight to space. It was actually to get the work done at the International Space Station. So how different from my first space flight, where I thought, boy, I get to ride a rocket for the first time. Whereas on my fourth space flight, I'm thinking, yeah, the rocket ride gets me to where the real work has to be done at the space station, where I got to do three spacewalks, experience the command of my own little spaceship, my own little spacesuit as I worked outside for 19 hours. So that kind of sense of the shuttle's transition from a unique spacecraft that was the focus of all my preparations to it's just my commuter ride to work. That was really a mental shift that I thought was surprising. And then I think I'd like to emphasize the humor in the book. There are 135 shuttle missions, and I heard a lot of funny stories about the teams, the crews, and how they dealt with the stresses and preparations for the flight. So one that I remember in particular was Anna Fisher was on her first space flight in the 1980s, and her crew of five was going to retrieve a couple of broken satellites, bring them back aboard and return them for repair back on the ground. So she's on her first space flight. She's working with Commander Rick Halk up on the flight deck as they prepare for a crucial rocket burn to get them ready for the rendezvous with one of the disabled satellites. And the other three astronauts were down in the airlock getting ready for the spacewalks that would be necessary to retrieve them. So she's alone up there with Rick Halk and they're within a minute or so of the rocket burn has to happen on time, has to happen accurately. And Rick says, hey, Anna, I've got to go to the bathroom right now. <laughs> so he heads down through the hatchway to the lower deck to the bathroom. And she says, but, but Rick, we've got this crucial TI rocket burn. We need two sets of eyes on the checklist. And he looks back at her and says, just read everything and check it twice. <laughs> so that's how she was left on her first flight to complete the, the, the crucial rocket burn that accomplished the rendezvous with the, their first satellite target. So that's the kind of levity that comes through the book. And I think people will really enjoy getting the, the sense of the moods of the astronauts from anxiety to fear in some cases, and then just to exhilaration and fun as they work together. Well, it's really the gamut of human emotions. And I mean, what other possible venue to display that in than really space and final frontier? What do you think we've learned from these missions? What do you think it says about our renewed push for the exploration of space? And by the time we ended the, the shuttle program in 2011, uh, we had learned so much about how to operate effectively as teams in space. It's just incredible to me that we've been able to build million pound international space station, largely carried up there by the space shuttles. And so you take those that experience in spacewalking and robotic operations and construction to operate and maintain the, the space station of today. And the same kind of teamwork has to be applied to the return to the moon with the Artemis flights. And so even though it's been a dozen years since the shuttle retired, the lessons are still loud and clear at NASA. In the control center where they practice these moon flights that are coming up in the launch preparations at Kennedy Space Center, they remember the meticulousness which you have to prepare a spaceship to do its job that same kind of attention to detail and precision and commitment has to come through. And so the space shuttle taught us how to confront problems, speak plainly about them, and then deal with them one step at a time until you triumph over that adversity. And so we need that same kind of spirit of teamwork and the, the way we meet challenges that we learned on the shuttle to succeed in the 21st century. The new landscape, of course, is now you have a lot of private industry getting into space. Do you think they're receptive to these same lessons? 
Well, I like to think that these new spacecraft have benefited from the lessons of the space shuttle. Certainly they can read my book and, you know, get some more insight into how you do successful operations in orbit. That teamwork comes through, I think, loud and clear over and over again throughout the book. It's great that new companies like SpaceX, Blue Origin, Sierra Space have come forward and have developed innovative ways to get reliable transportation in place to the space station. But they shouldn't forget how institutions can fail. And the space shuttle taught us that. And those lessons should be remembered even by the private companies because they've all had accidents. They've all had, fortunately, no loss of life has resulted. But in the demanding world of space exploration, where you're operating in a very harsh environment at the edge of what we know how to do technologically, you're going to be subjected to these risks. I think the bottom line for me is is that these new spacecraft are much safer than the shuttle was, probably at least by a factor of 10. We'll see the statistics work out over time. But we, again, are looking at a human enterprise, which can't be perfect given human nature. And so these institutions, these new companies have to remember how to keep a culture of safety alive and thriving in their organizations as they try to take on these real real demands of lower cost transportation, huge rockets that surpass even the Saturn V back during Apollo. When they take on these big challenges, they're going to have to remember those lessons. People picking up the book, what would you like them to take home regarding the history of the shuttle, the people involved, and its place in the history of space exploration? Well, I think the legacy of the shuttle is that it was an amazing classroom for us in space. You know, the shuttle spent 1,300 plus days in space. They deployed 180 satellites and space station components, 37 flights docked with us station. Another nine went to the Russian Mir space station. 306 men and 49 women flew on the shuttle. And of course, it's burned into our memories. The images of the space shuttle is still the the iconic American spaceship today. Even though the shuttle fell short, its advertised goal of being an airliner type ride to space and a, a money saver, it was neither of those two things in the end. It did succeed in taking advantage of the versatility of the machine and the humans that flew it. And when you go to the museums today, whether it's in Florida or California or uh, the D.C. area where I live, to see the surviving space shuttles, you will be looking at the spaceship that more than any other craft launched our dreams of practical space exploration and turned them into reality. So it is still the thing that really gives us the capabilities that we have today. And it's it's wonderful to be able to go and see these machines and think about what they've taught us and how how long those lessons will be carried along with us as we head for the moon and to Mars. We were talking with Dr. Tom Jones, the new book, Space Shuttle Stories, first-hand astronaut accounts from all 135 missions. Dr. Jones, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Pleasure to be with you and check out astronauttomjones.com for more info. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.